comes from two passages. The first is Luke chapter 20, verse 1 to 8. Um, And I will be reading from the uh, ESV. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The second passage is Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 to 11. And again, I'll be reading from the ESV. By the word of the the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, friends. Uh, It's an honor to be with you again this Sunday. Um, Just to give you a quick recap of our three-week journey so far, uh, today we're finishing up our three-week topical sermon series on the Bible. Week one, we looked at the inspiration of Scripture. Week two, we talked about the inerrancy of Scripture. And today, thirdly, we're going to be thinking together about the authority of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Um, And these are topical sermons, so they sound a little bit lectury. They're not uh, systematic or expository sermons, so uh, please bear with me uh, because it might seem like a uni lecture, but it's not. Friends, as we um, come together now, why don't we pray and ask for God to help us? Why don't you pray and ask God to speak to you today in a way that you can understand and ask God to teach you um, how to love Him more faithfully? Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we confess, Lord, that if you don't speak to us today, Lord, we meet in vain. Father, we confess that if you don't work and if you don't soften our hearts and renew our minds, Lord, we're just wasting our time. Father, we we don't want to waste our time. And Lord, we eagerly want you to mold us and shape us. We want you, Lord, to teach us through your word, and also about your word. Um, So, Lord, in this time, we give ourselves to you. We pray that you would so fill us with your spirit, that you would grace us with humility, 
that you would give us um, a deep hunger and a yearning to learn about you and the authority of the scriptures that you have given us. Lord, we thank you so much that you love us. And we pray now that these few moments together might be useful for building us up and ultimately that it might be glorifying to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, like I said today, our subject is authority. Um, Today's sermon is titled, The Authority of Scripture. In other words, how do we know what's true? How do we make our decisions? So many decisions in life. How do we figure out what God wants us to do? Do I date this guy or that guy? Do I take this job or that job? Do we send our child to this school or that school? Do we invest our money here or there? How do we figure out how God wants us to live our lives? Uh, It's not really good enough, I think, for us to say as Christians, well, I'm just going to figure that one out for myself. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to pray about it, and I'm just going to take a guess, and I'm going to step out in faith. Because, if we're honest, we realize that our brains and our hearts are actually very devious. So by ourselves and without God's help, it's impossible for us to live with wisdom. It's impossible for us, even just in this room, to come to consensus on things, on important things. Even in a room full of maybe 15 or 20 people, it's really hard to come to an agreement on important things in life where decisions must be made, let alone a few hundred or a few thousand people. So friends, two weeks ago, we talked about the inspiration of Scripture. In other words, God has breathed and He has caused words to be recorded. The Bible is unique in this way. It's a book that comes to us directly from the God of the universe, the God of creation. And then last Sunday, which was week two, we talked about the inerrancy of Scripture, the content of Scripture. Uh, We talked about how we have enough manuscripts to be able to work out the original meaning with great confidence and with such accuracy. And we also talked about how if our attitude is humble as we read it, and if we are teachable, and if we treat the Bible as innocent until proven guilty, then we're going to greatly profit from it as, as individuals and as a church. Today, week three, we come to the question of authority, the authority of Scripture. And friends, I want to think about this under three headings, uh, three points. Firstly, the importance of authority. Secondly, the claims to authority. And thirdly, Scripture and authority. So the importance of authority, the claims to authority, and Scripture and authority. And then I want to conclude with five brief points of applications for us today. Friends, I hope this will genuinely help you. Um, And I hope it will encourage you to know that Christians all around the world are making a sensible decision when they follow Christ and trust in His Word. It's not a random decision, and it's not a head-in-the-sand, ignorant decision, neither. It's a really sensible decision. Friends, let's think firstly about the importance of authority. Now, you're all very educated people. You don't need me to tell you that authority is a pretty dirty word, right? Uh, Most people in our world, especially in the West, especially in the modern West, they don't like the word authority. Authority is a dirty word. And friends, I reckon it's always been a dirty word. Ever since Adam and Eve refused the authority of God back in the garden, authority has been looked on as humans as an anti-freedom thing. Our sinful minds skew it. We view God's authority as an anti-freedom thing. So people ask, how can I possibly like authority? It'll take away my freedoms. But we also know that good authority actually provides freedoms. For instance, there are very authoritative rules about what lanes you can drive on as you cross the Harbour Bridge in peak hour morning traffic. And these rules are designed 
to make sure that you and I get across safely and happily to arrive at our destination. Actually, they're, they're there to make sure everyone gets across safely and happily. But if you were to break the authority of the lanes on the Harbour Bridge in morning traffic, then you're going to get some pretty messed up traffic, which will cause hundreds, if not thousands of people to be late to work and also hate you for what you've done. If you break the authority of the lanes, it could result in collision and chaos. We know, as humans, that bad authority is like dictatorship and tyranny. Bad authority is anti-freedom. It's trying to box you in, oppress you, or squash you. But good authority is there to bless you. It's there to help you flourish. It's there to give you, actually, greater freedom. Friends, and as Christians, I'm not sure we can get freedom without authority, to be honest. Somewhere in the life of a Christian, there has to be a context or a framework in which we can live and worship and operate with security and safety so that we can flourish. And just as there is a handbook for driving on the roads and it has the full backing of the government, friends, there is a handbook for living in the world and it has the full backing of its maker, who is God Almighty. How are we going to agree on what's right on the roads? We need an authority. How are we going to agree on what's right in life? We need an authority. And God, in his great kindness, has given to us a book or a library that's in the Bible. Friends, at my previous church, we had a working bee, and we had a concrete driver come in with his truck. And when he came to the church, he was working, and the concrete driver said to me, when he discovered that I'm one of the pastors at the church, he said, you know, we just need all the churches to agree. And I said, I agree. He said to me, we just need to find a way for everyone to get along. We need a plumb line. We need a level. And I said to him, Brother, actually, God has indeed given to us a plumb line. He's given to us such a level. He's given to us the Bible. That is our measuring stick. If the churches would just come and humbly unite around the Bible and submit under the Bible, and yes, I know there are questions about interpretation and things like that, but if we were to be humble in our approach to the Bible, we would get the bulk of it absolutely clear. We would get the most of Christian life and worship and community living absolutely clear if we were to treat the Bible as it is, which is God's authoritative word. Well, you'll be pleased to know that I went on to speak with this concrete truck driver, and I did my best to give him a summary of the Bible, and I gave him one of the church Bibles. I stole it, and I'm very embarrassed to tell you that I gave him lots of concrete facts about the Christian faith. And I'm also embarrassed because maybe you don't like dad jokes. That's okay. And he drove away with a slightly confused look on his face. But friends, here's the tragedy. At the very time that the world that we live in says we're very anti-authoritarian, the church has almost followed suit. And I think that's a great tragedy. That just at the moment in history where the world has said nothing is true, the church has also kind of lost this message as well. It's kind of lost its focus, its vigor. The Christian church, especially in the West, I think, has really come loose on our zeal, and passion on what objective truth is. And, very sadly, most Christians and most churches, we've kind of just indicated to the world, we've kind of said, you know what, guys, we're just like you. We think the Bible is pretty good, it's pretty optional, and you can read it if you want to, but you don't have to. Of course, if you find it helpful, then yeah, you can read it, you can trust in it, 
But even if you don't, we love you and accept you, and you can be a Christian with us. Let's worship God together. So I think it's a great tragedy that for so many Christians and churches in the modern West, we've failed to simply stand up and speak up and speak clearly and lovingly and winsomely and say, guys, there's a measuring stick. There is a plumb line. There is a level God has given to us his authoritative word, which we call the Bible. The great J.I. Packer, he said this, at the very time that we need some steady words in the world, the church is lurching around like drunks in a fog. Some years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and there was a gathering of church leaders. It was run by Anglican people in around the world. Um, and the person who was running this specific meeting, um, during this segment, they decided to put us into groups of five. Groups of five, discussion time, they will throw questions. And our aim was, in our small groups, our aim was to talk about the priorities for the church. And the final instruction for that time, it went like this. It said, we want you to use as your guiding principle the Anglican three-legged stool, that is, scripture, personal reason, reasoning, and tradition. Now, friends, let me tell you that my group of five, and actually every other group of five, went into absolute chaos. It wasn't possible to raise a biblical principle without someone saying, I don't like it. It wasn't possible to raise a tradition without someone saying, the Bible's against it. We have three handbooks. It's kind of like trying to play basketball with three different balls. Basketball, a ping pong ball, and a bowling ball. Given to you, just go play. It's not possible. The whole discussion time was just a mess. Friends, I'm convinced we need an authority. We need to be united around an authority. It's quite simple. And thanks be to God, he has given to us such an authority. Friends, firstly, the importance of authority. Secondly, let's think together about the claims. The claims to authority. The claims to authority. Because we know that actually there are lots of claims to authority. Many people, many groups are claiming authority. Firstly, many of you will know that for the last 2,000 years, various people across the world have called themselves Christians, have looked in different places for authoritative answers. And I want to give you a very quick picture, a very quick uh, snapshot, and I want to very briefly do a quick stereotypical survey of Roman Catholic churches, liberal churches, charismatic churches, and reformed evangelical churches. Now, I understand it's a very broad sweep, um, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of Roman Catholic churches have looked at institutional leadership for their answers, for their authoritative answers. For example, what does the Pope say? What do the cardinals say? What do the bishops say? I think the liberal churches have looked traditionally to human reasoning. They've looked to what they call scholarly opinion, intelligent thought. So I work in a denomination that's actually quite liberal. So for them, it's what does Dr. So-and-so say? What does Professor So-and-so say? They've looked to what they think is intelligent thought for authoritative answers. So uh, a hallmark of a liberal church, actually, is a very smart person's interpretation of the Bible will trump what the Bible actually says. So they're not asking the question, what does the text say? They're asking, what does Professor So-and-so say? And very sadly, oftentimes that takes precedence over what's truly authoritative. And, and if you look at some liberal Christians, um, and if you have eyes to see, then you'll realize that's actually exactly what unbelievers are living their life as well. It's exactly what unbelievers say. They'll say, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the church says because this is what I think. 
And so you have this collision going on of just millions of talking heads with all their thoughts, and at its worst, an extreme arrogance, an extreme ignorance, and what I think is great pomposity. And I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Christian leaders talk on Q&A on ABC, and you'll see people like Tony Jones and Stephen Fry and some of the other experts on this panel, and you'll see them talk with absolute nonsensical pomposity about Christianity and the Bible. They talk as if they're experts when they've probably never even read it. And then you'll see someone who's gone down the whole track of reasoning with all its chaos. Friends, we need authority. That's liberal Christians. I think it's fair to say that charismatic churches have often looked to experience or personal encounters or personal revelation or a direct message from God. So for the traditionally charismatic Christian, they're not asking, what does a text say? They'll be asking, what happened to me? Or what did I experience? What was that like for me? And the Reformed and Evangelical churches have traditionally looked to the Scriptures. Now, do we all just say, let's just go back to our tents? Do we just say, let's go back to our tribes, you know? Because we've got all our different opinions. No, because I think that would be to exalt reason to the supreme place of authority. Everyone, I think, who calls himself a Christian has a place for Scripture. But the $30 million question is this, what will you do when there's a clash between your institution and your scripture? What will you do when there's a clash between your experience and scripture, or between church authority and scripture, or history and scripture? What will you do when there's a clash between what you've experienced or what you've seen and what the Bible says? So, for example, when someone says, I think Mother Mary should be honored alongside with Jesus, we have to ask as Christians, well, what does the Bible say about that? When someone says, I think all religions are the same and they're all just as good as each other, we have to say as Christians, well, what does the Bible say? And when someone says, I personally feel very drawn to this person and even though I'm not married to her, I want to have sex with her and I think that's okay, we have to ask, no, what does the Bible say? And, for example, if someone says, I personally think that it's fine for a man to marry another man if they truly love each other, we have to say as Christians, no, no, what does the Bible say? The question we have to ask is, are we willing to do what Jesus did, which is to bow to the Scriptures, even if it's very costly? Because I think that's what a real disciple would do. And when you turn to the Bible, and when you turn to the pages, and if you look at the life of Jesus, you'll find that He not only himself surrendered to the Word of God at great cost, but you'll notice that he also settled arguments and debates and controversies by actually quoting and teaching from the Bible, his Bible, which was what we have as Old Testament. You remember Jesus, when you look at how he answered people, Jesus would respond, actually, with questions. And time and time and time again, Jesus would say something like this. He would say, what does the Scripture say? For instance, in Matthew 22, verse 31, when Jesus is being challenged about the resurrection, he'll respond by saying this, Have you not read what was said to you by God? Notice he doesn't say, Have you not tried to work out what God might be saying about the resurrection? Notice he doesn't say, Have you not read what God said to someone else? No, no. Jesus says, Have you not read what God said to you? You may be sitting here in church today thinking, Hold on, preacher. This is a bit of a circular argument, to be honest. 
Because here is this guy telling me to read the Bible to find out about Jesus. And that Jesus is going to say, go read the Bible. And then he goes back to Jesus, back to the Bible. So you might be listening thinking, this is a bit of a circular argument. Well, I want to let you know, this isn't a circular argument. It's actually a linear argument or a logical argument. And I can prove that to you because it goes like this. When we take our Bibles off a bookshelf, we take it off a bookshelf because it's a book, objectively. We take a book off our bookshelf and we open it. We open it and we read it. And after a while, especially, let's say, if we're in the Gospels, the four Gospels, we begin to realize that we're actually reading history. We're not reading fiction. We're reading nonfiction. We're reading history. We're reading about a historical person who lived in the time of the first century called Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we need to, as responsible readers, we need to, as we read this particular book, figure out whether his claims to lordship and his proofs to be Lord mean that he's actually Lord. That's the question. We need to look at his historical resurrection, Jesus coming back from the dead, and we have to ask ourselves, is this legit? Like, does him beating death prove that he's actually not a human like me? And when we've made that decision, then we need to work out if we're going to surrender everything to him and worship him and trust him and follow him as Lord. And then, of course, as we begin to follow him because he is our Lord, we're going to treat the Bible the way he treats the Bible, with great reverence. It's a linear argument. Get the book. Read the history. Work out Jesus. Look at it, what he says. Look at what he does. Look at his resurrection and make a decision and follow him, and then follow his view of the Bible. It's a logical argument. It's a very reasonable and a sensible thing to do, I think. The key question, the key question is, if we believe that Jesus is Lord, how does he rule us? How does he control us? How does he bless us? How does he lead us? How does he care for us? And church, the answer is, he leads us and cares for us and controls us, not by being silent, or causing us to guess, but he does it by giving to us a most wonderful word, the Bible. Friends, so I hope you can see how much we need a supreme authority in the world. I hope you can see that the scriptures that we have in the Old and New Testaments is a great gift which cuts right through all human opinions, which cuts right through all human experiences, and it sets up for us, the Christian, a standard, a level, a plumb line, for us to live by, so that we can come together as Christians and humbly bow before God's Word and live according to what it says, because we can trust that the God who's given it to us is very able and very wise and very generous. So that's the second point, the claims to authority. So just to recap, firstly, the importance of authority. Secondly, claims to authority. Third thing this morning, a little bit more complicated, that is Scripture and authority. Scripture and authority. Friends, if we were to ask ourselves this morning, imagine I said to you, turn to the person next to you, and imagine that we had this dis discussion, and the question was, what authority is there in the world today? Think about that. What authority is there in the world today? Well, some of you might say, there's authority of the physical laws of the universe. For example, whatever goes up must come down. For example, gravity. So if I jumped out this window, I'd probably hurt my ankles, maybe my knees, Gravity is a law of gravity. So we learn to obey these laws from a very young age. They're actually authoritative laws. Some of you might say there are also various institutions, like government, 
and we who are Christians should learn to respect and honor these institutions if they're reasonable. But you have to admit, there are also people who claim to have authority. And church, I hope that you will use your God-given faculties, your brain, and especially holding the Bible in your right hand, to work out what allegiance to give to people who make big claims to authority. Because I know, for example, that the Prophet Muhammad has made big claims to authority. Huge claims. And yet, personally, I will give him no allegiance whatsoever because I don't think he's earned it. But when I come to this remarkable person called Jesus Christ, when I see who he is in the Bible, he not only talks authority, he lives authority. And in light of his resurrection, I find myself saying, here is a man who deserves my allegiance and my worship and my obedience. Look at what he's said. Look at what he's done. I'm persuaded. I'm fully persuaded. Friends, I think that's the way the Christian must think. Jesus claims authority by basically saying to people in the world, he says, your eternal destiny lies in the palm of my hand. That's basically what Jesus will say. He will say things like this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Not only does Jesus claim authority, but he also exercises authority. And I don't just mean he casts out demons and he raises the dead. Yes, that too. But if you observe Jesus' life and ministry, there is not a single area of life that he doesn't speak authoritatively into. Marriage, church, money, family. Jesus speaks authoritatively and he brings it under control and it's so unified under who he is. And the way he communicates the authority to us today is not by writing on the sky. It's not by giving us a dream. It's not by giving us good brains. The way that Jesus communicates authority to us today is through his words, his written words. That's why when you have reverence for Christ, and I hope you have reverence for Christ, then you'll have reverence for the Scriptures. Uh, Pastor Timothy Ward, he's written an excellent book called Words of Life. But in this great book called Words of Life, he says this, The authority of Scripture must be understood as shorthand for the authority of God. Did you catch that? He says, The authority of Scripture must be understood as shorthand for the authority of God. And the authority of Scripture is dependent entirely on the authority of God. Friends, we need to ask ourselves things like, what did Jesus think of the Bible? Well, historically, obviously, the New Testament wasn't around when Jesus was around. So you ask yourself, what did Jesus think of the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament that he read and studied is virtually the same as the Old Testament that we have in our Bibles today. I think we can say, from looking at the Gospels very confidently, that he read it, he learned it, he memorized portions of it, he preached it, and he lived it. And when Jesus was having a clash with the devil, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4, and the devil was offering him unbelievably attractive temptations, you remember Jesus saying, we're going to settle this with Scripture, Matthew chapter 4. You'll notice Jesus say things like this. He faces spiritual temptation from Satan himself. Jesus will respond by saying, what does the Scriptures say? He'll respond by saying things like, for it is written. When the time came for Jesus to settle a, a debate on the subject of marriage and divorce, you'll notice he'll take them straight back to Genesis 1 and 2. 
and he will quote from the Bible. He will say, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus settles arguments and controversies with the Bible, with Scripture. When I think about the many arguments that are in the world today, um, voluntary assisted dying, refugees, abortion, uh, all these things, right? Uh, racial discrimination, all these things, all the injustices of our world. And you've got to think objectively. I'm a Christian. My workmates and maybe my friends outside of church are not Christian. What's the point of settling that debate with Scripture? Because I might think it's authoritative, but for them it's not. But I realize if I truly believe the Bible is God's Word, I need to know I don't make this the God's Word. Like, I'm not quoting it to give the Bible authority. I'm quoting it because objectively, it has authority. Once in a while, I'll meet a random person, and you ask them, how did you become a Christian? And they'll say, oh, I was reading this, this one line from Proverbs, and I became a Christian. It makes no sense. It doesn't talk about atonement or sin or anything, but he's like, that's what I read, and I became a Christian. I became a believer of Jesus. Friends, I'm not saying that we need to go out of our way and encounter and combat every controversy with Scripture, but I'm just saying that's what Jesus did. And I think for us as Christians and church leaders, that's a very important point. Can I also just say, uh, by way of passing, um, just a side note, if you have any doubts on what Jesus thinks of same-sex marriage, which is legal in, in our part of the world, Jesus will say in Matthew 19, verse 5, he will say, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then, of course, when Jesus is being arrested, and there he is in the garden, his good friend Peter foolishly brings out a hopeless sword to fight off the Romans. And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away, because I could call 12 legions of angels to come and help me. That's 72,000 angels. He says, Peter, put it away. I could call 12 legions of angels to come down and help me. But then he says this, how then would the Scripture be fulfilled? How would the Scriptures be fulfilled if I call down 72,000 angels to fight these guys? How would the Scriptures be fulfilled which says clearly and plainly that the Son of Man must be killed? In other words, Jesus says, we're going to settle this with Scripture as well. So Jesus' view of the Old Testament is my view of the Old Testament, and I'm convinced it should be your view of the Old Testament as well. Well then, what does Jesus think of the New Testament? Well, very simply, I think he authorized it, he organized it, and he commissioned it. In the upper room, after the Last Supper, he says to the apostles in John chapter 14, he says to them, the Holy Spirit will come and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Think about that. Jesus says, to his 12, he says, I'm going to go, I'm going to send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will remind you. That's one of the features and the functions, of the Holy, what's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will remind you of everything I, Jesus, have said to you, disciples. And that's how these very ordinary men, ordinary disciples, they're not very smart guys, fishermen, carpenters, right, tax collectors, that's how they were able to remember the things that Jesus has said and done. How? Because God sends his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to help them remember. And in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will tell you what is to come. And that's why the New Testament role of prophet is actually apostle. So here he is, Jesus, with his 11 apostles, Judas gone, around the table, and he says, 
I want you to know that the Spirit will come on you and He will help you to remember and He's going to help you to know what's coming and that is going to enable you to record it. And the apostles, that is what we generally call the twelve, they were the ones who saw Jesus. They were the eyewitnesses of His resurrection. Jesus gave them His authority to perform miracles. He backed them and He authorized them to put the Scriptures together in the New Testament. And when they speak, they speak with huge authority, huge authority. So, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, quote, you receive the word of God from us. Or Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction, don't associate with them. I'd never dare say that to you. I'd never dare say to anyone, if you don't obey my instruction, have nothing to do with them. But Paul will say that. Why? Because he's speaking for Christ. He's speaking on behalf of the Christ. He's speaking with the authority of Jesus. And in Galatians 4, he says, you welcomed me as if you welcomed Christ. Friends, so we can conclude that Jesus stands supreme above the universe, and he communicates his authority to us through his wonderful and perfect and inerrant word, the Bible. Friends, I've been a Christian for about 13 years by the grace of God. And every now and then, and you probably think this too, every now and then, I'll have a little look at my own Christian life, I'll have a look at the Christians around me, and I'll have a look at global Christianity, and I'll think to myself, you know, it's pretty bad. I think it's it look, looking pretty weak. It looks pretty ordinary. So I, I look at these things, and I think, to be honest, I wouldn't mind just hibernating for like two decades or so, and just, just wake me up in like two decades but I find that I cannot give up on Christ. Largely because he has his grip on me, but partly because I'm gripped by him. You see, the more I look at this person in the Gospels, the more I see his magnificence, his power, his beauty, his wisdom, his authority, his grace, his compassion, I realize that no bad man could have invented him. And no good man would have invented him. And I say to myself, this man, the man God, Jesus Christ, he is the ultimate reality of the universe. No matter how much I want to, I cannot walk away from that. No matter how much I'm discouraged as a Christian, I can't walk away from that. And then I take, I begin to take a hold of his words, sometimes one verse a day, and I realize that he blesses me. Jesus blesses me through his word. I don't find it easy, for sure. I know that we can take a passage and come to disagreements. I know that. But in the end, I think it's the listening to the Word of God in the light of what Jesus has done. And it's the, it's the humility and the seeking to learn. And it's the seeking to trust and obey His authoritative Word, which brings us great freedom and safety. Well, there are my three points. Let me close with five very quick points of application. First of all, I have an illustration in my mind, and it goes like this. It's not a very good illustration, but it goes like this. If you go to town hall, and you stand on the town hall steps, and if you desire to catch a train to go somewhere, and you want to make some progress on the train, you're going to have to go down some steps. If you don't go down some steps, you cannot get on the train, and you cannot make any progress, and you can't go anywhere. You can stand on the town hall steps all you want. You can want 
all you want. You can think all you want. But in the end, you're going to have to go down some steps and actually get on a train. Church, when it comes to the Christian life, there comes a point where you have to humbly go downward and you get into the Scriptures if you were ever to go forward and make any progress in your Christian life. You have to go down on your knees, get under the Word of God, and you have to get on the train called Christ. And the whole Christian life, it operates on the basis that if we as Christians want to make any progress in this Christian life, we have to go downwards and say to ourselves, His Word will settle it. His Word will settle it. So if you stand tall and say to yourself, I don't care what the Bible says, this is what I'm doing, then you cannot make any progress. For example, if you say, I don't care what the Bible says about relationships, I'm angry and I'm going to get bitter and I'm going to get my revenge, if that's what you think, then you cannot make any progress. For example, if you say, I don't care what the Bible says about roles in the family, about husbands being leaders and wives being supportive, I don't really care what that says, I'm going to do what I want. If that's you, then you'll never make any progress. You'll just stay permanently a spiritual baby. Or, for example, if you say, I don't care what the Bible says about money and wealth, because I want to keep it all for myself, because I know better than all the other Christians, then I don't even know if you've got on the train. You cannot make any progress. You must humbly go down some stairs in order to get on the train of Jesus and actually make progress. And every hour of every day, in our minds and in our hearts, regularly, we have to say, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to bow myself to God and His Word. I'm going to open it. I'm going to say, Lord, please speak to me. Please speak to me and teach me and guide me and lead me and give me the wisdom that I don't have. That is how we are going to make progress as Christians. That's the first point of application. Secondly, friends, I hope you'll use the Bible to drive away the fears and the insecurities that we will have as Christians. I was really uh, surprised to read earlier this week in the writings of the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I consider maybe one of the most robust theologians of modern Christian history. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this. He says, so often, you and I as Christians, we feel that we must placate God or appease God because of our sin. We tend to think of God as being opposed to us, and therefore, we're always thinking about Him as someone that we have to appease or placate. What an honest comment. By default, when we sin, by default, we want to try and make it up to God. That's just how we are as sinful people. And maybe there'll be some of us today who'll say, I don't know what you're talking about, preacher. I'm never like that. But the truth is there are a lot of people here and elsewhere, a lot of Christians who will think that deep down in my nature, I keep wondering whether I must keep God happy. I keep wondering whether he's an angry dad and he's going to smack me for all the wrong things I've done, so I must appease him or placate him. Maybe I need to serve him and his church more so that he's not angry at me. But when you go to the Gospels and when you read the New Testament, you discover that that way of thinking is completely wrong. That's not grace. That's not compassion. And we realize that God has actually built a bridge toward us. He initiates 
everything with us all the time. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So we need the Bible to help us to drive out the fears that we have so easily in our hearts. The third point of application is this. Do remember that Jesus said, if you're going to build your house on the rock, it means you will hear the word and do it. There's something quite weird about me, and maybe you're similar. Sometimes I get very casual about the Christian life, and I think to myself, you know, I could probably believe and disobey, and everything will be okay. But I think it's actually impossible to have peace with God in our hearts and also live in disobedience at the same time. And so we as Christians need to learn and relearn that if we are to enjoy peace with God, then we need to be active and intentional about our obedience. Do it. Don't just read it. Don't just hear it, but put it into practice. If you hear the Word of God and you don't do it, then the Bible says we're like the man who builds his house on sand. If you hear it and you don't do it, we're like the person who looks in the mirror and goes away immediately forgetting what we've seen. Five points of applications. Firstly, you need to go downwards to go forwards. Secondly, we need to use the Bible to drive away the fears and insecurities that we have. Thirdly, don't just read the Bible, but do the Bible. Do the Word. Obey it. Fourthly, if you're in a small group or a Bible study group, why don't you set up a habit or have an agreement in your small group that you're going to try and remove the phrase, which goes like this, I think. It's really hard. I was reminded of this um, as I was reflecting on my own Christian journey and particular moments that really helped me. I was in a small group once, and I was in a Bible study group, and it was led by the pastor, and it had me, a few other members, and he had an older man as well, this older guy. And I remember again and again and again, uh, throughout the course of the Bible study, people are, people are saying, I think, and I think, and I think, until finally our old man, he just blew up, and he says, who cares what you think? What does the Bible say? Who cares what you think? What does verse 13 say? And friends, that was funny at the time, but that was actually a turning point in my life, 100%. That was one of the highlights of my Christian journey. That was a turning point, not just in my life, but in the life of that small group as well. Because from that moment onwards, those Bible studies became clear and powerful and very effective in equipping us as God's people to obey the Word and live for Him. Friends, I'm convinced as churches and Christians I think our Bible studies and small groups might actually be ruined with 10 people sitting in a circle thinking, I think, I think, I think, and everyone else saying, thank you for sharing, and then we pray and we go home. No, no. I just think we need a little bit of agreement in our Bible study groups that there'll be more people who'll say, not what I think, but let's see what it says. What does it say? That's the fourth point of application. Fifthly, read your Bible. You knew it was coming, right? It's a three-week series on the Bible. That's the final point of application. Friends, read your Bible. Um, the NCLS, uh, nod your head if you know what the NCLS survey is. It's a national church life survey, the Christian life survey that most churches fill out every year. So Christians put a lot of money into this, and they survey every church goer and every Christian, every denomination across our country in Australia. And one of the things which is really concerning church leaders in our country is that there's actually an increasing number of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who actually just don't read their Bibles anymore. They read masses of messages on their phones, on their laptops, on their TVs, but they don't read their Bibles anymore. 
Friends, remember I said two weeks ago, please don't tell me you don't have time to read because that's just dishonest. You do have time. We read things that are important. Please don't tell me you're not a reader because you are a reader. I think there's a great tragedy in our country where people are basically saying, Jesus is my Lord, but I never listen to him. Jesus is my Lord. I love him, but I ignore him. That's insanity. That's psycho. Either he is Lord and we're listening, or we're not listening because he's not Lord. I think it's really difficult and very hypocritical to say Jesus is Lord, but I'm not listening to him. And so, friends, as we come to the end of this three-week series in biblical confidence, I want to urge every single one of us to get back into a good pattern of Bible reading. Maybe it's just half a chapter a day, just Bible, journal. Maybe it's a half a chapter a day, maybe even less than that. But make the time, get yourself a good study Bible and maybe a good study guide. You can ask your pastor for suggestions. Maybe even just a psalm a day. Read, think, what does this say? What does this mean for my life today? How does this shape my prayers? Write some things down and pray that this passage will be lived out in your life that day. And pray that what you've read will be lived out by your people in church, in your family, your friends. And pray for your non-Christian friends so that they would come to see God for who He really is. Because you remember what Jesus said, the truth will set you free. The authoritative and inerrant Word of God will set you free. Friends, may God use His powerful Word to build us up into maturity and greater confidence in Him, both individually and corporately as a church, so that He might build His kingdom and use us for His glory. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise You for giving us Your Word, the Bible. We thank and praise You for giving us Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His own Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that You would help us to be humble, help us to be obedient, and Lord, we pray that You would make us a people that respond to You with joyful obedience. Help us, Lord, as we read our Bibles this week, to not do it with drudgery or legalism, but help us, Lord, to do it with great delight. Lord, we pray that you would teach us what a great privilege it is to know the mind of God. Father, we pray that as we read your word, that you would help us to live your word. Father, we pray that as individuals and as a church family, that you would build us on the firm foundation of Scripture. And we pray that you would use us for your purposes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.